Welcome to episode number nine of Colorado TechCast. Once we got to the point where we really understood and believed in our brand and the effect we wanted to have on people, it changed everything that we did from what we said on our website to what we said when we were speaking in front of a crowd to what we said on a sales call. It really pervaded all aspects of our communication. Hey everyone, this is Trapper from Colorado TechCast, the show that tells the stories of Colorado technology entrepreneurs and the companies that they're building. To hear new episodes of this program, go to our website at coloradotechcast.com. There you'll find everything you need to know to subscribe to the show with links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and everything else we talk about on the program. Today I'm speaking with John Williamson, a serial entrepreneur who's consistently found success by bringing technology solutions to traditionally low-tech business models. His current company, Elite Massage Chairs, combines the art of physical massage with the science of a technology they call Braintronics to deliver impressive therapeutic results. Through massage and brainwave entrainment, they're able to induce the ideal meditative state, even in people who have never before meditated. John talks about marketing your ideas by making connections to the community that surrounds your products, creating an effective brand strategy by understanding how your company and product name connects both logically and emotionally with your customers, and how to remain focused even when you just want to throw in the towel. Now let's get started. All right, so John, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, your bio, things like that. Sure. Um, probably the way I'd look at it is maybe in a highest level, you can divide it into two chapters. It's kind of got the, the postgraduate, just hit the job market in the world. And I traveled Europe right after I graduated. I worked in Spain for a couple of years and even tried my hand as a, as a fly fishing guide in Alaska over a summer. And after that, I decided to move to Colorado and instantly started my first company, sold it a couple of years later, thought I was bulletproof. And then from there, was really enamored with what was happening in technology. That was about the time the dot-com thing was going. And so I went to work in sales in the dot-com area. Got a, a handful of really good jobs with some emerging companies, primarily in the internet security space. And it really was kind of my, my first glimpse inside the, the tech startup and all that that entailed. Because I, I got to see them from very early stage to some of them to a pretty nice outcome. Mm -hmm. And then that, that was really what ushered in what I'll call the second chapter, which is more the entrepreneurial um, history that I've, I've had. I became really enamored more just with a tone of changing categories with innovation. Just being able to take an industry that was had been doing something a very specific way for a long time in coming up with a new way of looking at existing products and services using technology. And so I dived into my first startup was in the market research category. It was called Qualview. And it was an online and eventually smartphone uh, database-based tech for qualitative research. And that ultimately spawned a, a second launch um, of another company, a sister company, if you will, to that called 24True. We grew it from zero to about 10 million in sales over seven years, and it was recently sold um, to a larger competitor. Mm -hmm. So kind of the two chapters of my life are, are laid out that way. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So what took you to Alaska to be a fly fish guide? Just a uh, wanderlust? Probably the same thing, <laughs> yeah, really the same thing that had me land in Colorado. It, it was just this crazy passion for outdoor activities. Um, I grew up fishing and was completely enamored with the idea of the wilderness and got connected with a good friend who was a guide up there. And the more I learned about it, the more I just had to do it. 
went up there and it was an incredible experience. It's fortunate now later in life I've had the chance to go back to that same lodge a couple of times as a guest with a totally different perspective. Right. But just it was just about being in, in that environment. I loved it. So what brought you to Colorado? Were there were there specific qualities of lifestyle that Colorado offered? Totally. As a matter of fact, it was just because I wanted to. And, and I, I should say we, because I was with my uh, soon-to-be young wife at the time. But really, it was uh, it was a yeah, matter of pure want to. It, we were not chasing a job; we were chasing a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that's what that's why we're here. It, it really was that the, the real motivation was to hunt and fish and hike and bike and spend as much time in the sunshine as possible. And that's obviously. Colorado's got all those things in spades. Yeah, definitely. It seems like every time I open up Money Magazine or one of those, you know, at least one town in Colorado is rated best place to live or you know, best place to retire or something like that. So our state has a lot of really awesome things to offer. And you know, specifically pertaining to entrepreneurship and technology, there's just so much growth going on right now in the state, you know, focused on that. So mm-hmm. I think people who are drawn to those out- outdoor activities come here for that and get engaged in cool businesses or uh, people who are just, you know, inclined to, you know, entrepreneurship or technology come here and, and are able to enjoy all the yeah. benefits that, you know, you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right, Trapper. I, I, I think this is probably an overgeneralization, but it seems to me in the people that I've met, in the circles that I run, you know, particularly in technology on, with Qualview, is that people tend to bring tech to Colorado versus being attracted by tech in Colorado, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting market for tech. It's not really traditionally known to be a tech hotbed. I don't know that it's got much of a reputation. I can't tell you specifically, but the impression I get doesn't have much of a, a reputation as a tech hotbed in other areas. But there is a lot going on here. Um, and I think even then, it's, it's a smaller, more insular tech community. But I think the upside is it makes it easier to connect. I mean, there's just more opportunities. I know my experiences with Qualview and 24 True really helped me plug into that. A lot of connections here, not only investors, but also just things like the Colorado companies to watch. You know, we won that award one year. Mm-hmm. And our know, funding came from local venture capital and local angel investors at an early stage. So. It is. It's, it's a different market, certainly, than other, what I'd say, traditionally tech markets, but it absolutely can hold its own, at least from my, my experience. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you know, getting your start in security and then jumping to entrepreneurship, running your own companies. What led you to that decision? Yeah, I hate to sound totally shallow, but I, I don't know that I would be disingenuous not to say freedom and financial rewards. <laughs> um, certainly, it was an ambition. Uh-huh. You know, I, I felt that that's where you know, I think every, every entrepreneur is going to be have equal parts, you know, energy and enthusiasm and confidence that whatever they strike out to accomplish is going to make them filthy rich. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't have that that faith and that mindset, I, I can't imagine that it would be you could you could make it make the leap. But certainly, those were the things that motivated me. I, I, I think those you know the, the opportunity to really build something um, to create uh, value innovation by applying technology in areas where it wasn't necessarily applied before. I mean, those were things that really got me going. Mm-hmm. I know when we talked before, you said you were drawn to areas with underexploited technology and, and little to no innovation. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. what led to founding Qualview? It did. It, as a matter of fact, I mean, even going back, when I first moved to Colorado, I was, wasn't sure what I had from a job perspective. I actually started my first little company right after I got here. And it, it, it had the same traits that you just mentioned, even that Qualview did ultimately. I started at, of all things, a same-day delivery company. You know those couriers mm-hmm. that, that deliver packages, you know, within an hour or on the same day. And we, you know, it was in 
largely back in that time it was driven by the travel industry, but also medical field. We did a lot of uh, moving organs and you know uh, specimens and things of that that type. But really, it was the same concept as later uh, ideas that I had. You had this really old, what I'll categorize as kind of tired category, where it had really no tech. And my idea was to build a software platform that managed the flow of you know the contents that we were delivering. You know, creating a within software, creating this grid system that you could identify more efficient patterns of, of movement and you know, giving drivers new tools so that they didn't necessarily have to make deliveries on their own, but they could actually you know, use a hub system. And that's really, that was the idea behind that, that first business. And ultimately, we sold that to our largest competitor, 1-800 Courier mm-hmm. at the time out of New York. And they bought our client base. We had about 100 clients and the technology. And yeah, and to your point, that's exactly what motivated me with Qualview. You had qualitative research, which was mostly focus groups, offline focus groups, people traveling around the country to these facilities, you know, watching consumers through one-way glass. And in the case of Qualview, we figured out that we could get the same level of qualitative input from consumers using their webcams or ultimately their smartphones and actually go into their homes in wild, you know, more wild or raw environments where they're actually interacting with the products or the messaging. So, yeah, I think, I think that theme of bringing technology to bear in an industry that's largely void of technology has is, is always been a big motivator for me. Mm-hmm. And then how did you exit Qualview? Like when did you know it was time to move on? Yeah, that's always a tough question. And in that, you know, it's, a, it's a majority of factors that are you know, capital, um, you know, what the, the amount of leverage that you had, the conditions of the marketplace and larger competitors, what they were trying to accomplish at the time, what they saw in Qualview, what they felt that the opportunity was to, to plug that into a larger enterprise. So it was just a, a lot of factors. And, you know, those things are almost impossible to predict. I mean, certainly timing is everything. I think we had really good timing when it came to Qualview. You know, in the case of, uh, of quantitative research, I don't know if you know much about the research field, but generally there's quantitative and qualitative. Quantitative is the survey stuff. And, you know, SurveyMonkey had already set the tone in quantitative. So quant was moving online. Timing was perfect because the qualitative had not really had any real form of meaningful innovation. It was generating a lot of content, but there was really no way to unlock that content for data mining and such. So, you know, timing just happened to be right for us when the industry was ready for that level of change and we were able to, to blaze a path and, and prove that it could be done. But yeah, you know, going back in time, there's probably a hundred other little details that, that matter. But generally speaking, timing was right. Mm-hmm. So after Qualview moved on to found 24True, what lessons learned had you amassed at this point in time that you're able to, to apply to your newest company? Lessons I learned... Um, First of all, no vacation is one. Um, certainly, hum- humongous amounts of stress <laughs> and uh, the willingness to, to take that leap again. I mean, I, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but at the same time, those are certainly lessons that any entrepreneur is going to learn. Very hard lessons that you learn yes. along the way. They're, they're real. They are hard. <laughs> they are. They're hard lessons. But, no, you, I think ultimately, the, you know, those lessons are real and they are hard, I think. But also the lesson is... One of, of introspection, I mean, are you, you know, can you look in the mirror and say, I'm, I'm, I can continue to apply this level of commitment despite the, you know, the odds or the, the possibilities of what could go wrong. 
you know, I'm willing to continue to make, you know, extreme sacrifices, mm-hmm. both in time and energy and effort. It, it's certainly not for everyone. I've learned that, you know, but I think ultimately what carries me forward is just the operate or the uh, opportunity to create meaningful value. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea that something, an idea, uh, a belief that something can be innovated that would ultimately make it, you know, that the service or the product itself even more valuable um, can thrive, and people will be willing to value it as well. Um, certainly in the case of an acquisition, it makes more sense for them to buy it than to build it. Mm-hmm. So I think just, just being able to, to but understanding the, the consequences, you know, being willing to make that level of uh, commitment again, you know, those are all lessons that you have to learn and, and be comfortable with if you want to go forward and try it again. So both of your companies, 24True and, and Qualview, were acquired by the same company, right? Correct. Sometimes it makes more sense to go out and acquire a company and their technology and their resources than try to innovate it and build it in-house. Larger organizations tend to be more less nimble, more cumbersome. You know, there's more red tape. Sure. Rather than if you're a small company, you just sit down, you crank it out, and you've got a product that you know that a larger organization wouldn't be through the first phase of building. Did you build your two companies with the intent of being acquired down the road, or what was your uh, like? What was your end game? Yeah, it was, and I think that's largely. I, th- I think that it's going to be a, a a condition of your funding and and your capital. In our case, it was venture capital, you know, early stage private investment, and then ultimately venture capital. And and, and generally, the the value creation, um, the exit scenarios, typically will follow along those lines. I, I can't say that it's always. I mean, certainly you could build companies that will cash flow for years, but I think in in certain conditions, there's certainly a an identifiable exit strategy I think everybody in you know around the table can agree to and in our case it was an acquisition mm-hmm. so then after 24 true your next venture was elite massage chairs uh, so tell me a little bit about about what that is and kind of what that does with your focus on bringing technology to underexploited areas yeah that's a, it's a great question and I get, and it's funny I get asked that question a lot by peers and guys that I've known for for a long time in the you know both within businesses but outside because it's not at first uh, blush, you know, when you say uh, massage chairs, people don't really think about technology or innovation. So it's, I, I get that a lot saying, anyway, this, this is so different than anything you've ever done. But I, I really think it fits the same theme. You know, it's bringing innovation technology to a, a, an industry that hasn't had it. You know, in the case of massage chairs, if for, for starters, I think there's a lot of upside in that there's less than 1% penetration of massage chairs in the U.S. Although there's really high level of awareness. Most people have seen or bumped into one at Sharper Image or, or Brookstone or maybe seen one at the mall, but it's still pretty lean in terms of, of real ownership. However, they work. You know, there's estimates out there that, that 17 to 22% of Japanese households have massage chairs. You know, it's an exploding market in China and in Korea. And, the, and the, fundamentally, it's because those countries take massage seriously. And these chairs, these devices really work. But there's really not much in the way of innovation. And so we've been systematically over the last year applying a new level of innovation to the massage experience. And in our case, we've learned through some, ironically, market research from a a past life that most of the massage experience, or I should say most people associate the massage experience with the physical therapy experience. And Mm -hmm. in reality, it's just as much emotionally beneficial and enjoyable as it is physical. So recently, we've 
created a new technology that we've integrated into massage chairs. It's called Braintronics. And it's a nod to the emotional benefits, particularly of massage. And what Braintronics allows anyone to do within a few minutes achieve a state of deep mindful meditation through a process called brainwave entrainment. And it really takes the whole experience of sitting in a massage chair at a whole new level. And, and there's a lot of opportunities in terms of value creation, whether it be smartphone application um, or it be you know, recurring revenue models. But the bottom line is, is that we're bringing a totally new innovation and it's technology-based into a traditionally a, a, you know, product that has not had any real technology innovation. It's been primarily about mechanical massage. Mm -hmm. What is Braintronics and how does it work? Like you mentioned um, brainwave entrainment. Is that like meditation? Yeah. It, 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 well, it, what it does is it facilitates meditation. I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of, two, two anecdotes that a lot of people are familiar with. You may have seen this in like old movies. You know, the, the classic case of the, the hypnotist waving a pocket watch in front of, a, in front of somebody. You know, you're becoming sleepy. Um, yeah. it, another more probably recognizable one, because we've all experienced it, is that some people, as soon as they get into a car or on an airplane, will fall asleep. And underlying both of those uh, anecdotes is actually science. It has to do with brain, your brain. It, your brain is always operating under a certain frequency. You know, certain frequencies when you're fully awake and certain frequencies when you're asleep and certain frequencies when you're in a state of mindful meditation. And not everybody achieves that state, but people that meditate do. You're fully conscious, but you're extremely relaxed and very much in the present. The way Braintronics works is we use the, it's a technology where we will simply expose you to different frequencies during your physical massage from the chair and your brain will subconsciously align itself with those frequencies. Anyone can achieve a really deep state of relaxation and even meditation just by sitting in one of our massage chairs. And it really enhances the, the, mm -hmm. the physical therapy as well. We're working with a couple of professional sports uh, organizations right now, as a matter of fact, in the, uh, to develop sports recovery applications using Braintronics. So we're also talking to some counselors and, and physical therapy offices um, as well to provide brainwave frequency treatments combined with massage for all matters of, of mental as well as physical ailments. So how does Braintronics work? Is it like audio and visual? Is it um, music you listen to? What is it? It's a series of programs that are programmed into the massage chair. And really how it functionally works is you sit down in a chair and you put on a pair of noise-canceling headphones that, that comes with a chair, sit down, you press a button on the remote control of your massage chair and the entire process initiates. So at once you're getting a full body massage while also being exposed to these Braintronics programs that have varying, various levels of, of uh, purpose. So there's muscle relaxation, there's anxiety and stress relief, there's even programs for getting a better night's sleep. But really it is as simple as sitting in a chair and pressing a button. And through the headphones, we provide this audio stimulus that facilitates the entire Braintronics experience. Interesting. You meditate without having to learn to meditate. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's one of the things that I'm most excited about. It's really taking massage chairs to a whole different plane using technology is that not only are massage chairs great, I, I can tell you from personal experience, I was a skeptic, you know, coming in this early stage when I was assessing the business and doing my due diligence. 
But once I sat in one of these you know, new high-end chairs, it's, it's a revelation, first of all. You can't believe how effectively a chair can deliver full body massage. So certainly from a physical perspective, I mean, that's exciting to me for sure to introduce more Americans to that experience. But when you then layer in Braintronics, the opportunity is even greater than simply physical therapy through massage. To your point, it's really meditation for the masses. One of the things that I've learned in going out and talking about Braintronics and selling it and going to exhibitions and shows is that Americans generally really want to meditate. Um, it's not very difficult to get into a conversation with somebody. And, and once you start talking about meditation, it's very common to hear people say they wish they could. You know, or they're, they're aware that meditation could have real benefits in their life, but they're really not quite sure how to go about it. And the idea with Braintronics is to make it easy for anybody to meditate and to achieve that level of deep, relaxed you know, awareness in the present. And the added benefit is it's easy to deploy because when you get a massage chair, you want to sit in it. And so by combining those two experiences, it's something that people can, and, and certainly from you know, the feedback from our customers, will use every day. And it really has very compelling benefits. How did you happen upon this, this idea? It's funny. It, it, this is a good kind of uh, regrounding in some points that you you'd brought up in our, our interview. I'm naturally inclined to look for ways to innovate an existing product, service, you know, industry. And really, that turning point for me is when we applied some disciplined research to massage chairs. And for me, it was more about, at the time, just understanding who was buying them, you know, why they were buying them, how often they were using them, what conditions led them to make that person's decision, you know, really to inform our marketing messaging, quite frankly. But the turning point was in the qualitative research, what we learned was that people who got massages on a regular basis valued the emotional benefits as much, if not more, than the physical benefits or sensations of getting a massage. And that was, to me, the real turning point. When I heard that, it was really the first time the light bulb started you know, not only switched on, but started to burn brighter when I realized that was an area that was completely unexplored. Mm -hmm. And so that was just a natural progression for me to start exploring how can we apply technology in new and innovative ways to an existing product to help unlock that experience, not only to, you know, tell people, hey, you can now get emotional benefits, but how to even improve the emotional benefits, because it was an important driver, but really not understood. So... It was, that was the, the moment that I really became, you know, to that, that point where I did with, with my delivery business and with Quality and 24 True, where I saw that opportunity to apply technology in a new way to completely change the benefits and effectiveness of an existing product. So as you're out there on the front lines and pushing for things that haven't been adopted yet, I'm sure you've encountered a lot of resistance or a lot of skeptics. Mm -hmm. Was there ever really a time you wanted to just throw in the towel and go back to a corporate job? Ooh. I, you know, I... <laughs> That's a good question because, you know, immediately when you ask it, I, you know, I want to think about times when it was really hard. And I want to think about times in, in any of the businesses, you know, this one included. Mm -hmm. There's going to be healthy spoonfuls of self-doubt. You're going to hit a lot of rough patches. You're going to have challenges you weren't expecting, um, whether they be time or capital or ideas that don't necessarily resonate with, with where you're trying to take the business. So, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely times where, sure, I could think it would be a, a juncture where throwing in a towel may have been an option, but I think you yeah. have to just maintain that, that optimism. 
reconnect with the vision, take stock of the business. You know, if there are things that need to be addressed from an operational perspective or otherwise, you do those things. Yeah, yeah just keep true to your vision. Keep focused on your end goal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. Have you had mentors along the way that have coached you and guided you and kept you motivated and encouraged to keep moving forward? I think that uh, it's a good question. I, I guess it depends on your definition of a mentor, I suppose. I know that, and I know what you're asking. I, I think the, the traditional definition, you know, would be somebody, perhaps an, an older person or somebody who has, you know, relevant, applicable experience to what you're doing that you can use maybe as a personal coach or somebody to periodically check in with. And no, I, I can't say that that's been a regular strategy of mine. And I don't think it's necessarily because I haven't sought them. I just It's not been natural for me to seek out mentors. Having said mm-hmm. that, if you could define mentors as those people in your life that you're closest to, whether they be, in my case, my wife or really close friends, you know, those people have really provided me with the majority, if not all, of the guidance and support help I needed in kind of working through particular issues. But I, I can't, I'm not sure that that would fall into the, the broader definition of traditional mentor. There's a push in the United States now to have more apprenticeship type roles, which I think are fantastic mm-hmm. for a few different reasons. One, because mm-hmm. I don't think college is always the best route for everybody in all cases. And two, you know, sometimes the best way to learn is mm-hmm. by doing and getting out there and seeing how other people operate and seeing how you know, other industries operate firsthand. If you expand mentorship to what kind of guides you and what keeps yeah. you moving forward, mentor could be a person, it could be a community, it could be an organization. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah, and I think mentor, you know, a, a mentoring, let's call it dynamic, you know, could be education. You know, I, I, like I said, I, I don't know that. It, I hate to, I hate to throw this one out there. It's, you know, it's a horrid cliche, I know, but you know, to kind of do as I say, not as I do. I would say my not having had good mentors, just, you know, could be could, would be something that I would guide those going into an entrepreneurial endeavor or any life phase is to find them. I, I do believe in finding mentors and cultivating them. I learned too much on my own in all likelihood. I probably could have saved some time. You know, Trapper, you asked a, a good question earlier too, I'll, I'll add. It, as it relates to, you know, growing a business, it's one thing to have a good idea, you know. Certainly better if it's a great idea. But let's, we'll, we'll start with a good idea. If you've got a good idea, you can certainly build that idea. You can certainly build a, uh, what they used to, you know, we used to call in technology MVP, the minimal, minimum viable product, and get it out in the market and test it. Ultimately, though, you're going to have to market that idea. Assuming that it's something that works, you find that those initial beta customers are able to find meaningful value. Um, and the next question is, well, how do I get that out, the message of this product, this innovation out? I think there's a couple of different ways to do that. You know, one, I would encourage any entrepreneur who has a good idea, who, who has tested it enough, believes it's viable, to make connections into the community that surrounds your product. What I, what I mean by that, and I'll, I'll put it in the, the case of market research. In our case, it was the market research press. You know, those people, you know, greenbook.org is an example. These are uh, publications and other media, online and offline, whose business it was to cover the market research category. It was imperative that we take our story directly to those people and to tell them what we were doing and why we felt was important and to share with them our progress because you know that to them validated that we were newsworthy and ultimately that played a, an important role in, in getting the word out about what we were doing. 
Secondly, you know, we took the word uh, directly to our target customers, not only through direct execution operationally, just by cold calling, getting an audience, you know, banging down those doors, telling them our story, but also showing up at the conferences, you know, elbowing our way in to have conversations with those decision makers, ideally even getting speaking opportunities at those conferences. So, you know, it, it really, there's no magic bullet. You'd like to think that uh, there's the story of you're just going to instantly create buzz and everybody's going to be talking about you and, you know, it's just going to be, uh, uh, be raining money. In reality, it's, it's not that easy. It's actually more, you know, bruised knuckle entry into those places, those publications, those influencers, you know, making the case aggressively and going to them and then repeatedly, you know, refining that story the more you learn and, and, and sharing with them, you know, that progress. I just don't think there's any real shortcuts to, you know, building a brand. And in our case at Elite Massage Chairs, I'm very much in the earliest stages of that now. And, you know, from, from my perspective, I, I realized that in order to create buzz, we have to find a meaningful application for Braintronics. You know, we need to find um, a way that a particular target client will not only adopt it, but will talk about it, you know, allow us to raise our profile. And so that's really what's driving for me the initiative in professional sports because, you know, they have an audience. They have a platform. Um, and it's, it's an easy win for us because they're already utilizing massage therapy on a daily basis as a way to, to do their job. You know, we, we recently sold um, a handful of chairs to the Denver Broncos for placement in their locker room and, and, and club area. And it's not just as a, a, an employee perk, if you will. It's because these guys need ways to effectively recover from strenuous physical activity. But in our case, we'd like to take that a step further using brain tribes to create meaningful uh, brain wave frequency treatments for effective sports recovery, for optimal sports performance. And we believe that by doing so and by creating value for those kinds of organizations, they're the right place uh, to launch a, a good PR campaign. But again, our relationship with the Broncos, you know, we've sold chairs to uh, other sports, professional sports organizations, both in basketball and baseball and others. It's just cold calling, and it's continually telling that story, finding those influencers that you think can help you build a brand, help you, help you build a, a profile and awareness, and making those calls and working with them to create a product that they find truly valuable. So, John, talk a little bit about your experience creating brand strategies for each of your different companies. I'd be happy to, and I, and I have to preface my answer by telling you uh, that I was very fortunate um, early in my um, the process with Qualview to come across uh, extraordinary help when it came to branding. And I'll give all the credit to a company called Stratfix. It's a, a couple of guys that I was introduced to by one of my investors, and they really helped me to uh, take the story that I had, this vision that I had, and help me craft effective brand strategy. And so I, I will—I just want to give those guys credit because, um, really, I'm, I'm I'm puppeting a lot what I learned from them. And what they taught me is is, and I'd, I'd share with you is you have to really understand what brand is, and that understanding what brand is was the first step because I think everybody has this idea, and both. Both Eddie and Keith, these are the two guys that I work with, helped me understand that branding really was that the way that your company name, let's just call it that, um, connects with 
people you're trying to sell, and your customers. And the connection is, is logical, meaning it might be something as simple as your name, case elite massage chairs, denotes what it is you do. But just as importantly, there has to be an emotional connection. And this emotional connection is just kind of how brand speaks to people. And understanding that your brand has to play that role, it's a, that's a big weight. I mean, that's a, that's a big payload that you have to carry. But understanding that that's the level of detail you have to think about when you're building your brand, that really helps to you develop products, ideas. It changes the way you communicate. It changes the way you market your products and so forth. And so it really is, for, for us, building a brand was understanding what's the state of the industry that we're seeking to change. You know, what is the condition based on what we know, based on how we've, you know, we've interviewed our, our customers, we've looked around at our competitors, we've surfed the web under key, key search terms for our products and, and services. But really, we want to know what, from that, based on that information, what are we trying to do? You know, when somebody does see our name, hear our name, see one of our marketing messages, what do we want them to think? That was kind of the first step. And so being able to, to identify that, and that's going to be different for every business. As in our case, we've, done, we've undergone the same process with elite massage chairs, and we are trying to let people know that trying one of our products is a revelation. You know, it's not just surprising. It's not just interesting. It's not just better. It opens up a com completely different condition than what they thought was possible when they started thinking about our product. So, you know, and it just starts from there. And then from there, you know, we can say, okay, if, that, if that's what our goal is, we then start building the basic building blocks. Okay, who is it that we want to say that, you know, or think that when they see it? So you have to understand who your key prospect is. And that takes a lot of research, energy, and effort, but you do got to know who's the perfect customer. You know, and you have to identify their problem, who is your principal competition, and, and you know, what is the effect that you want your brand to have in the face of your comp competition and so forth. And it's a, it's a, as it might sound, because of the, the long-winded nature of my, my answer, it is a complicated process of sorts, but it's pretty logical. But you just, for us, it was really understanding what is the both logical and emotional effect we wanted our brand to have on our prospect, and then executing that. And that's going to be different from every business, but I found it to be invaluable in the case of both Qualview and 24True. Once we got to the point where we really understood and believed in our brand and the effect we wanted to have on people, it changed everything that we did from what we said on our website to what we said when we were speaking in front of a crowd to what we said on a sales call. It really pervaded all aspects of our communication. I heard one anecdote from my, my buddies at Stratfix that I, I've recalled many times when I've thought about brand. And in this particular case, it was it's based on some research they had done in the automotive category. And it really does say a lot about branding, I think. And, and the statement that, that they made was that when people buy an automobile, they justify their purchase logically, but they buy purely on emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, that to me more than anything, uh, kind of encapsulates what brand is. People buy and they have to have Good logical reasons for buying. Yes, I'm buying your massage chair because I have a bad back. Yes, I'm buying your massage chair because I get stress in my shoulders. Yes, I'm buying your massage chair because I spend too much on massages and I can easily, there's a real compelling ROI. But ultimately, the emotional reason is just as important. This product makes me feel better. This product makes me feel young again. You know, this product makes me a better mom or a better dad. 
you have to acknowledge that those underlying emotional reasons for buying are just as important as the logical ones. And I think too often when we think about our brands, we get too bogged down in the logical stuff, you know, the features and the benefits and the spec sheets, and not enough in the emotional. Don't sell the steak, sell the sizzle. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a good analogy as well. John, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. For people interested in your massage chairs, can you tell me where to go to find out more information? Nothing would be more pleasing for me at all. (laughs) www.elitemassagechairs.com. And I'd love it if people came and visited. And and just as importantly, if people visit it, whether they're shopping for a massage chair or not, I'd love for them to take a look at our site. I'd love for them to take a look at what we're up to in Braintronics. And I will promise not to even try to sell them a massage chair if they promise to give me some honest feedback on what they think. If they think that uh, our message is is effective and and clear or not, I'd, I'd love to open it up to anybody in this community that wants to offer their opinions. I'll take them all, good, bad, or indifferent. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Colorado TechCast. You can find more great episodes on our website at coloradotechcast.com. There you'll find show notes with things we talk about in this episode, as well as all other episodes. I'm currently building out the guest list for first quarter of 2018. So if you're a startup CEO, a co-founder, a CTO, or really anybody doing anything interesting with tech at all in the state, hit me up. My email address is trapper at coloradotechcast.com. You can also get us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at COTechCast. Thanks for listening to the show and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to somebody else. That's all for now. I'm Trapper Little, and I'll talk to you again on the next episode of Colorado TechCast. Take care.